Good morning and welcome to the Automotive Hour. I'm your host, Louis Aldazan, with Mr. Brian Terry. Hey, True Tools, we'll try to answer any automotive questions you might have. Why don't you go give us a call? It's 291-6901. And you put a 225 in front of that number. You can reach us from anywhere inside the continental United States this morning. That's right. We certainly wish you would. And just in case you don't get a chance to call in or something occurred to you later on in the week. Even next week at midnight. There you go. You can always get your questions answered on our website. The address is agcoauto.com. That is A-G-C-O-A-U-T-O.com. There's a contact bar on each and every page. Just click the button, fill out the form, and send it in. There you go. Easy way to remember that is Altazan's Garage Company, A-G-C-O, and just put auto because it's automobile. Agcoauto.com. Website can help you out, and when you can't get us, you can probably get answers right there. That's right. Just that, about everything we've talked about in the last 24, 25 years is in there. That's <laughs> right. There's a search bar. Just type in kind of the topic you're looking for, and I'm sure you're going to find more information than you probably want to sit down and read. Well, that's probably true. And, of course, with the website, the less you put into the search bar, the, the more, more information you, get. you will get. So if you're looking for, like, pedal height, brake pedal height, uh-huh. just put in the word height. And that's going to probably bring up a whole lot more information than if you put up brake pedal height or something like that. Because with searches, if you search in Google where there are trillions and trillions of choices, no matter what you put in, you'll get a whole lot of hits. Correct. When you're searching a website with maybe a million words of text, it's going to be a lot more limited. So the less information you put in, the more. And if that doesn't work, you can put in another word, there keyword, you go. whatever you want. That's just kind of a little tip on, on searching that site. Searching our site. There you go. <laughs> there you go. And that'll help you out. Got an email a little earlier this week from a gentleman, and I don't know, I guess it was four or five weeks ago, we talked a little bit about used cars, right. buying used cars and such right. as that, and he had a specific follow-up question that I wish that we would maybe elaborate on it just okay. a bit. And as I understood his question, it was, when does it make sense to buy a car with a problem? In other words, what would be the limit of problems you would want relative to cost? Because if you buy a car... Let's just say the transmission is bad. Okay. And you can buy the car maybe $3,000 under the normal selling price. Would it be worth it to buy that car and go ahead and fix the problem that's wrong and then go on from there? Depending on the automobile. It depends on a number of factors. One would be the automobile because some cars are simply far more problematic than others. Right. And so you might say, okay, why does this car have a bad transmission at this many miles? And the answer could be that, well, it's just one of those things, this transmission just went out. It can mm-hmm. also be the car has been abused. It can sure. also be this car just has a history of problems. So that would be one consideration. What kind of car is it and why did the problem occur? Right. A second really big consideration is, is this the only problem? Right. That's the biggest question, in, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Is this the only problem with the car? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, if it was your car and the transmission went out, you knew how it was maintained. That's you know correct. the car. But buying a car with a problem that will not drive, you have to really get it checked out fairly well to understand how many more problems this car may have besides just the, the obvious one. A very, very thorough inspection is going to be warranted at very least on a car that you buy with a problem, mm-hmm. with a known problem, or a problem that's uncovered. And that's why... If I just have to have a rule, I'm going to say I'm not going to buy a car with a major problem. Because Correct. most of the time, well, a lot of times, you're not going to come out on it. It's sort of like if I want to buy a car 
let's say I always wanted a 67 Camaro. Okay. Now, I could go out and find a 67 Camaro sitting in a field somewhere with no motor in it and one of the doors is missing and a tree's growing up through the windshield. And, and mm-hmm. I could probably buy that car for 50 bucks or maybe even get it for free. Mm-hmm. I could also go out and buy a car that has been totally restored and pay a premium price for it. Correct. As a rule, it is going to be way cheaper to buy that car already restored, ready to go, than it is to ever bring it back in the state you're talking about. Correct. Because when you start trying to repair things, particularly things that have really gone overboard, it is going to be inordinately expensive to bring all that back. If you can do most of the work yourself, you're Mm -hmm. going to save a lot of money. But if you have to pay someone to do that work. That's correct. You would be much better off, like you said, to buy one that's already done, get in it, turn the key, and drive off. That's correct. Because even that, it's an old car, and it's going to still need some stuff. Oh, it's, it's going to need a lot of maintenance. Yes, like old cars just need a lot of maintenance, and because of their age, they need even more. So you know when you get into a car like that, it's going to be the amount you pay is not going to be the end of it. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like buying an old house. Sure. I mean, the house that I live in was built in 1790. Right. And it's been pretty much totally restored before I bought it, somewhere back about five or six years before I bought it. Right. People came in, professionally restored the home. But still, there are things that go wrong. I mean, the old bricks need to be pointed because the mortar starts to break down. The bricks start to deteriorate. Just things happen with old stuff. Mm -hmm. Even with new stuff, things happen. But with old stuff, they happen even more. (laughs) Kind of like an old man. (laughs) (laughs) More things just happen to it. That's right. But, yeah, good, good question. And I guess the answer is if you can buy the car and let's say it is a traditionally good car. Let's say you find a Toyota Camry. Just pick a car. And this particular car, the guy who had it did not watch the oil level. It ran out of oil and burned the motor up. Sure. Okay, so you know it needs an engine. Now, have it thoroughly inspected. The rest of the car looks good. You can buy the car for an amount. That will allow you to put the motor in mm-hmm. and maybe a little bit for extra your, for your trouble right. and for the risk you're assuming, then fine, go ahead and do it because that's a way to get a good deal. And that would probably work out. But if you're buying a car that is traditionally a problematic car, let's just say a, a Chevy Traverse. Okay. It, traditionally not the best thing GM's ever built. Right. And you buy one with a transmission out and you get it and you put a transmission in it and then the air conditioning fails. And then you fix the air condition and then the timing change stretches and sure. you got to change time. Well, at this point, you could have certainly bought a better car without any problems at all. Definitely. For a whole then, lot less. Not than what you would even, have in this one. Not even beginning to count your problems that you've had and the trouble and being without the car and right. the aggravation and all the other stuff. So just, I hope we fully answered that. If there's anything else anybody would like to know about that, just give us a call. We'll be glad to discuss it a little bit more. Sure. Another sort of a collateral issue that goes along with that is when do you quit putting money into, into a, car? a car? Right. And there again, it depends on the automobile. A lot on the automobile, a lot on the care that it's had up to the point, point where things start to break. Mm-hmm. And you got to remember when a car starts to get a certain age, things start to happen. Sure. A lot of components are all about the same age. So it's not unusual for a lot of things to happen. But if it's basically a good car and you get those things fixed, you may be able to go a great deal further without a lot of other things going wrong. For instance, let's just take a car off the top of your head. Chevy truck. Yeah, a Chevy pickup truck. And let's say it gets 135,000 miles on it and the fuel pump goes out. Right. 
Okay. Pretty well, common. Pretty common issue. You have a fuel pump put in it. Well, maybe two months later, three months later, the transmission goes out. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, that's two big repair bills right together. Right. And a lot of people are going to say, well, well yeah, I'm, I'm done with this. I'm done with this. I'm spending too much money on this truck. Right. So they can't sell it without a transmission in it because it's worth zero. Exactly. They can put the trans in it. They can still get something for it. So they go in and put a transmission. They sell it. Well, next guy gets, he's got a good vehicle. <laughs> sure. Because <laughs> the two things that were going to break around that mileage have All both right. broke and both been repaired. Sure. So as long as they were fixed properly, then. That, that's the key word. As yeah. long as they were fixed properly. Quality parts. Quality parts by someone who knows what they're doing, who didn't halfway do the job. Right. Then you probably got a very good vehicle that'll go miles and miles and miles further. Mm-hmm. So my advice is you have to look at things over a context of time. Correct. Because a lot of things may come at once, but how much did you spend over, say, the last five years? And more to the point, how much are you likely to spend over the next five years? Well, it depends on if you fix this one or you go out and buy a new one. Mm-hmm. I mean... What you can put into this vehicle, you'll have a decent vehicle once you're done. Say you put five grand in it. That's right. Five grand is not going to pay the tax on a new car. Well, not anymore, yeah, because, I mean, I mean take a, yeah. new, a new Tahoe is $65,000. Exactly. 9% of that <laughs> yeah. is over five grand. Yeah. <laughs> so I had a lady came in the shop earlier this week, and she had, I think it was a 2002 or 2004 Lexus. Lexus. Yeah, yeah I remember that one. RX 300. And she was saying, well, the car is 12 years old. I'm getting a little scared of it. I'm right. thinking of selling it. I said, well, that's fine. If you're ready for a new car, then life's too short. Go ahead and get what you want. Sure. But if you're scared of it because it's like, you know, you're probably not going to get as durable a car, no matter what you buy, as you've already gotten. Sure. Because this car was pretty much legendary. Those cars were just great. Oh, we, we see them. Yeah, uh, I've seen just them for regular maintenance. 250,000 miles on them, still going strong. And this one is going to need some stuff because the tires had gotten old. So right. it's gonna need, even though you had a lot of rubber, it's going to need a set of tires. It's probably going to need a timing belt. So you're going to spend a good deal of money, maybe a couple thousand dollars right there. Mm-hmm. But when you spend that couple of thousand dollars, chances are you could drive the car another five or six years without, without any, any other major issues coming up. Exactly. And like I told us that when you buy a 2016, it's got a lot of gadgets on it. If you like that, if that makes you happy, that's wonderful. But you have to understand when these gadgets break, mm-hmm. they're going to have to be repaired. It's not, it's not like it was back when they first started coming out. You could just do without it. That's just right. leave it out. You pretty much have to repair it. Right now, stuff. you have to repair it because it all communicates on a, a central bus line. Mm-hmm. And if one of the components goes down, it doesn't communicate. And it could shut the bus line down, which shuts the, the vehicle down. That's right. And we're going to take a quick little break. When we come back, I'll give you a little formula to know when it's time to trade. Great. There you go. Travel Hi, folks. Louis Aldazan here from Agco Automotive. This year we celebrate 40 years in business, and, man, I can't believe all the calls we receive from national dignitaries. Louis, it's the governor. I'm taking time out from my new movie to congratulate you on 40 years. I got to run, but... I'll be back. Lewis, hey, I'm playing golf with an old friend, and we wanted to call and say that 40 years is quite a run. Lewis, that is absolutely splendorific. <laughs> hey, Lewis, James here, 40 years. Wow, you know, there's nothing more I like than a good homegrown Louisiana success story, except, well, maybe politicking and my tigers. You up now, you hear? Well, I'm flattered. I guess even in the world of politics, honesty and integrity are still something to value. Okay, well, maybe outside the world of politics. Agco, 
After 40 years, it's still the place to go. Hey, welcome back. If you just join us at the Automotive Hour, I'm your host, Louis Aldazan, with Mr. Brian Terry. We sure appreciate you spending your Saturday morning with us. And we were talking just a little bit about knowing when it's time to trade a car. Right. Because everything mechanical, and I guess just everything, reaches a point where it's just going to cost more to maintain it than... It's not feasible to repair. Yeah, it's just not feasible to repair. It just gets to the point where, you know, even a human being gets to a point where you just can't keep going. You uh-huh. Know, just just happens. So... What I always try to do is I have a number in my head that a car is worth to me. Okay. And everybody's got their own number. And if you like driving fancy European sedans, your number might be five or $600 a month. Sure. For me, my number's about $200 a month. Okay. And that's what I want to spend to drive a car. Now, clearly, I can't go buy any new car on the market. And For $200 a $200 month. $200 a month. It's right. not going to happen. So what I try to do is buy a three-year-old car and then keep it about 10 to 15 years. Okay. And I did the math on my Buick the other day, and the acquisition costs, every repair, all the maintenance, everything I've ever done on it in all the years I've had it for 11 years now, right. it comes to about $137 a month. So I'm under my target of sure. 200 a month. Now, if I'm looking at a major repair, then I have to keep my target in mind. Let's just say I have a repair that costs $2,000. All right. What I have to ask is, if I do this, can I reasonably assume that I can go 10 months without any other major repair? And, of course, it's always a reasonable assumption because nobody can absolutely predict the future. Mm -hmm. But it is very likely that if I spend this $2,000, I can go at least 10 more months without a repair, then it's a good deal. I'm still on budget. Sure. I'll do it. Now, if I have a repair to make and I say, and I say no, because I'm probably going to have this, this, well, now it's time to bail. And so you just calculate the number, and the number is going to be based on the kind of car you wish to drive, the fancier the car, the, the more it's going to cost, the more per month it's going to cost. And you want it to be less than what you can go buy a new car, clearly. Mm-hmm. You know, a new car now, for the most part, is going to be in the five $600 a month range somewhere. Well, and not only that, you got to take into consideration when you upgrade your vehicle, mm-hmm. you have to upgrade your insurance policy. That's a fact. So there, there's more money you've got to put into the equation. Not only that, but you generally are going to have to carry full coverage on a new vehicle because Providing, most mortgage right. companies are going to require it, lease companies require it. Sure. On older vehicles like I drive, I don't carry full coverage. I carry liability, uh-huh. and I just self-insure because if the car were wrecked, I'm a pretty good driver, so odds are it's not going to be my fault. If it is my fault and it gets wrecked, then I'll just go get another car. And, you know, it'll aggravate me, but it's not going to wipe me out financially. I can afford to take the risk. I don't have to pay somebody $1,000 a year or $1,500 a year to insure that car Mm -hmm. because my car is probably worth $3,000 on the market. Right. You know, if it gets wrecked, I'll just cough up three grand and go buy another one like it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to pay a thousand to fifteen hundred a year because the odds are I'm not gonna every two years wreck a car. Sure. And I've been doing that for about twenty five years and I hadn't lost a car yet, so I'm what fifty grand ahead right now. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that that's just my way of doing it. Uh-huh. And of course everybody's got their own ways. Let's go to phone lines with Herb. Good morning, Herb. Yes, sir. I heard you talking a while ago about a Chevy transverse, I believe it is. Yes sir. Uh friend of mine won't get one with a trailer towing package and he'd want to throw a Single axle trailer with a big zero turn bush hog uh-huh. brand mower. You think that it'll hold up doing that? 
I tell it, you it, what, they don't seem to hold up real well to her without throwing nothing that. at all. Right. I mean, they just, in my experience, they're very, very lean vehicles as far as construction. A lot, a lot of air conditioning problems with them. Normally at low mileage, just over 50,000 air conditioning usually kind of goes out on them. Transmission issues. Transmission issues. They had a lot of engine problems with that right. 3.6 liter engine where the timing chains are stretching on them and you got to take the motor out and take it apart. I don't know if they've ever fixed that or not, but I know all the ones we see, we get those in pretty regular, just over 100,000 miles. And a lot of front end problems too. Yeah. Uh, lower control arm bushes go out on the struts start leaking on them. I wouldn't buy one on a bet, just me personally. <laughs> right. But I guess there are people out there who have them and like them. You know? My neighbor has a GMC Acadia, which mm-hmm. is the same vehicle. Same vehicle. Mm-hmm. But and she loves it. Yeah. I mean. It's got a lot of features. Nice-looking little, nice little vehicle. Yeah. But, little old lady. She drives back and forth to the, the store and to the kid's house. Yeah. And, you know, she really doesn't drive it hard or abuse it or anything. Right. And she loves it. Yeah. And I got to say, if you can afford to buy a car like that and keep it about, 80,000 miles, 70,000 miles, then go trade it off and get another one, yeah. you probably like it okay. It's just if you like me and you got to keep them for 200, 250,000 miles, you're probably not going to like it a lot. I told him along them lines. I told him the GM General Motors that built his van and his three-quarter ton truck is not the same General Motors oh, no. that no. built this. No, no, <laughs> But he thought I was full of bulls. So yeah, I see that. <laughs> they're fixing to introduce a vehicle that's made 100% in China. I think, really? Next year. Yeah, I forget what they call it. But, that's uh, great. Well, you know, when they got that bailout money, they built GM Shanghai. Uh-huh. Huge plan. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah. And so I guess that's where they want to get their money back is <laughs> wow. so the, start importing cars from China now. There you so go. you'll get shanghai if you buy one. Well, I, don't know. <laughs> I, I, didn't, I didn't say that. <laughs> okay, let y'all go. I heard. Thanks, Thank man. Bye. Bye-bye. All right, 291-6901 is the number. If you're part of the automotive hour, we'd love to have you. And, you know, that's a shame. Yeah. It, it really is. you got a, a known American company. Yeah. That is going to build cars overseas and then import them back to the United well, States and, and what, call them American made. What gets me is they are the loudest ones to stand on a soapbox, wave the flag, and say, buy American. Sure. You buy know, American. Yeah, buy American. But it's we're good building, for the economy. We're building this but overseas. But we're going to build this in China because it's cheaper for us and we're going to bring it in and sell it to you. We're going to put a name on it. be American name on it. That's right. In fact, it ain't even an American name. I was going to say. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Louis Chevrolet was Swedish. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How about that, huh? Hey, boy. What oh, you going to do? What I you, know. What you going to do? That's funny. He used the word Shanghai. You know where that term comes from? No. In San Francisco, shipping port and all that, and they always needed sailors, and it was kind of hard to get them to go to China because I mean, it was a huge, long crossing. And right. They, you just couldn't pay them enough to do it. So what they'd do is they had all these bars all around the warfront there, and they had trap doors in the floor. Okay. And they'd get these guys, they'd get them drunk. They'd fall through that trap door, knock them in the head. Next thing, they want to ship to Shanghai. <laughs> <laughs> At least that's the story they told when I was in San Francisco. Yeah. And they still got tunnels down there, so, so I got to say. Uh, there that, might be a little bit of legality to yeah, it. Yeah, it sounds pretty credible. <laughs> <laughs> but that's how you get Shanghai. There you go. <laughs> little, wow. Little, yeah, you can learn all kinds of stuff listening to Automotive Hour, can't you? I'm telling you. <laughs> we don't hold it to just automotive topics. So. <laughs> there you go. We uh, get a lot of email on Various different topics. And one thing that I get a lot, I know we have talked about this in the past, but I think it bears reiterating and going more in-depth with, and that's on brake problems where people have either a low brake pedal, the pedal's on the floor, or they're having some kind of a hydraulic problem. Uh And that's very, very simple to diagnose as long as you understand basic hydraulics. And we're going to go into that a whole lot more in just a second. Let's catch this phone call. We got Gary online. Good morning, Gary. 
Oh, yes, sir. I've got an 09 Avalanche. Uh huh. And it's acting crazy on me. Okay. The computer's showing this stable. Check the stable. Stable track, yeah. Mm-hmm. Stable track. track. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I'm driving down the road, and all of a sudden it loses power. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all the are. lights go crazy. The right. door locks even go popping up and down. Hmm. And I thought it was Halloween or something. I yeah. don't know what was going on. I've seen that before on them. The losing power and the Stabilitrack are both tied together because when Stabilitrack thinks the car is out of control, it's going to cut the power to 20%. And you can put it on the floor, and it's not going to make a bit of difference. Exactly. It, it yep, just won't yeah. go with 20%. You it gotta, did rev up, but it didn't go anywhere. Yeah, you cycle ignition, and it'll go back until it occurs again. Now, does that occur at the same time as the door locks, or is the door locks a separate issue? No, same time. All yeah, if it's all happening at the same time, that sounds like a malfunction in the body control module because the body module controls every bit of that. And what happens on a vehicle today is that when you push all the various buttons, let's say you push the button for the door lock, that is not an analog button like you remember in the past with a switch and it just pushes a magnet or something. Right. It's a sensor and you're pushing a request for the door to unlock, which goes to the body module. The body module evaluates that request, grounds a relay, pops an actuator, which opens the door. And the body module is kind of like the brain of all things on the body. So it doesn't mean the module itself is bad. It could be one of uh, inputs to it. Like, for instance, you could have a bad switch, a switch that's hanging down and is freaking that module out. It could be a ground. Has any work been done on the car recently? No, not really. No. Original radio in the car? Oh, no, it's, that sure has. I've changed. That's the only thing I did change. There you go. Start there. Go in, really? un- unplug yeah. that radio, and see, because all that is tied directly into the body control module. And that can very, very easily freak it all out. Yeah. Yeah. Another real common source of problems is if you have a trailer hitch on it, the trailer wiring will short out and that can freak it all out. A loose battery cable. Yeah. Even a loose battery cable. What you need to first do Gary is to go in and unplug the things that you've added and see if the problem goes away. And if it does, then you start from there. Okay, the only now, thing I'll keep getting from the dealership, they tell me my battery must have a dead cell and it's acting crazy. Well, but that's real simple to, to yeah. diagnose. And the problem with that is you're not having any other issues. You know, you, your right. lights aren't flickering and your alternator isn't doing crazy stuff. So right. I think that that's probably less likely than some other things. But I would say I would start with anything that's been added to the car. It's probably something's interrupting the data in the body control module and freaking it out. Well, that's two things definitely that I do. I have a boat trailer, and every once in a while it does blow a fuse. There you go. Oh, yeah. Oh, water. yeah. Absolutely. Start start there. It. Disconnect all of that and see. And, well, I didn't add that on. That's factory, but still, it does go out on me. And then mm-hmm. my, my radio did break, and they did. I brought it to the dealership, and mm-hmm. they did change the radio. Well, there you go. Huh? Either one of those. Either one of those would be a prime candidate. Beautiful. Okay, all right. Thanks for all your help. All right, Gary. All right, sir. Thanks, man. Very knowledgeable, you fellas. Thank you. Thank you, Thank sir. You. Bye-bye. All right, 291-6901 is the number. If you want to be part of the automotive hour, we got to take a quick little break. Paul, if you hold on, you can be straight up after this break. Hey, Lewis Alzan, Magco Automotive. This year we celebrate 40 years in business, and you won't believe the people calling in to congratulate us. Hey, Lewis, it's Jay. You, you know, I'm in the cars myself, and 40 years of business is amazing, just amazing. You know, if I still had my show, I'd have you in the interview chat just like that. Mr. Altazan. 
Congratulations from your old pal, Jack. 40 years is quite an accomplishment, and that's the truth. I should know, because I can handle the truth. Uh, uh, Lewis, it's, it's me, Oz. 40 years. I, I can't even... Bloody amazing. Sharon, where's my cell phone? Oh, that's right. I, I, I'm on it. Now I've got to find my glasses. Well, it's been really nice getting all these calls. I guess in this day and age, people really appreciate an automotive repair shop that does good work and will never steal your own. Agco. After 40 years, it's still the place to go. Hey, welcome back. Just join us the Automotive Hour. I'm your host, Lewis Aldersand, with Mr. Brian Terry. Still got plenty of show left. Why don't you go ahead and give us a call? It's 291-6901. And we've got Paul's been patiently holding. Good morning, Paul. Hey, good morning, Lewis, Brian. Good morning. I remember about 10 years ago, somebody had called and asked your opinion on the hybrid, the hybrid cars. And at the time, if I remember right, you said it was kind of up in the air. Didn't know exactly what I was going to play out in the long run. Mm-hmm. Have you got an opinion on, on that now after, after so many more manufacturers are going in with that? You're talking about little hybrids? Yeah. yeah oh, yeah. yeah. I'm going to tell you, the thing is with a hybrid, Paul, first thing you got to remember is that is not new technology, okay? Mm-hmm. Because uh, in 1935, a German submarine was a hybrid. Mm-hmm. It had a diesel motor, was charged a battery, and ran the submarine underwater. But, again, that was a government with a defense budget that could keep that going, and it was necessary to make things go underwater. And where I'm going with all this is, does a hybrid hybrid technology work? Absolutely it does. The problem then and the problem now is it's just not cost-effective. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't save nearly enough gas to pay for all the technology and maintaining all that technology. In other words, where the savings come from with a hybrid is you're trading chemical energy in the form of gasoline for electrical energy in the form of a battery. Right. But you're still paying for energy. And that battery can be anywhere from three to $6,000, and it's going to last about eight to ten years. And then you got to buy another one. Right. Well, in that time frame, you're not going to save $6,000 of gas. It's just not going to happen. Another big issue with them is it's very, very complex. For instance, you have what they call the hybrid motor or transactional assembly, that is the starter, the alternator, and the motor. Mm-hmm. It's $12,000. So the starter goes out as twelve grand. Well, the point is, if you want to say, yeah, I want a hybrid because I like it, and will it work? Yes, it will. It will get you down the road. If you say, what is the least expensive way for me to get down the road? That's not it. Uh-huh. You'll just never, ever come close to saving enough gas to even pay the difference in price to buy it up front, much less to maintain it. Right. That's just my view of them. I mean, I know people who have them and like them, and that's uh-huh. wonderful. But if you do the math, you're just not going to come out. Not even right. It's just not a practical technology. It's sort of like electric cars. The first cars that we had were electric. Some of the first cars we had back around the turn of the last century, electric cars outnumbered gasoline cars by a wide, wide measure. Uh-huh. Simple reason being we had electrical technology. We had to innovate the gasoline-powered internal combustion engine, but they had electric motors already. Right. So all the first cars, in fact, the first guy killed in a recorded automobile accident was killed with an electric car. The problem was when the gasoline cars came out, they were so much more practical because it was so much less expensive to operate, so much easier to operate, so much lighter, so much faster, so much more powerful that they just eclipsed the electric cars and they went away. Sure. It's just the better design won out. And, of course, now they're trying to bring them back for all numbers, sorts of reasons. I just say do the math on it. Do the math very carefully with someone who knows they're talking about. And if you just want an electric car, you just want a hybrid car, that's great. Life's too short to get what you want. 
But if you're trying to get from point A to point B in the least expensive method, you will never come even remotely close to saving enough money with that design to pay for the cost of maintaining it or the cost of buying it. Yeah. I understand. That's actually what you said, you know, about 10 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. Hadn't changed my opinion. <laughs> okay. I, I appreciate it. All right, Paul. Thanks for calling me. Thanks, mm, Bye-bye. Tigers. Yeah, man. <laughs> Bye-bye. All right. 291-6901 is the number if you want to be part of the automotive. I would love to have you. Those vehicles, if you can buy them and turn them every so often, like I know in New York City, almost every taxi cab is a hybrid now. Right. But they're getting a pretty healthy subsidy from the city to run these to help the emissions because that is one thing they do they do help reduce emissions right because when they're sitting idling which in new york city you do a lot they're running on the battery right instead of a gasoline motor sitting there running and that's where the saving comes in and i guess they can depreciate them out over the course of the time before it needs a battery or maybe they can buy enough batteries and they got people in house who can change them out whatever their reasoning is behind it right it's not just a horrible design. It's just a very complex design. It's a very, very expensive answer to a problem. And the only thing that kind of gets me is if we'd have put one half the effort into refining what we already had and making it better, we could probably get the same mileage with an internal combustion engine that they're getting with these. Sure. Because they've spent trillions of dollars developing these things and it's just not a cost-effective technology well you've got two separate powertrain systems right you've got your regular gas motor right and then you've got your electrical side of it right so you've got double maintenance on this vehicle you got all the problems of an electric car with all the problems of a gasoline car combined with the stuff that has to interact between the two right and it's just going to be a very expensive proposition overall Mm -hmm. you're going to save anywhere from 20 to $50 on gas, and you're going to spend a couple hundred dollars on additional maintenance. Well, you're still buying energy. Yeah. You're still buying the— You're just buying it as a battery instead of as gasoline. electrical instead of gasoline. That's correct. You're still plugging it in the wall. You're still paying for electricity. Right. So the price difference there, I mean, like you were saying earlier, you're not going to make your money on it. Well, if you just really wanted to do something outlandish, I mean, you could build a nuclear car. Sure. That would never need any additional fuel, but it would probably cost— several million dollars and it would probably blow up every once in a while and kill a whole bunch of people yeah it's just not what is the cheapest way to save gas it's what is the overall cost of driving my vehicle sure and we get into that a lot where people will go trade a car that gets maybe 20 miles a gallon to get one that gets 30 miles a gallon and think oh well i'm gonna save enough money to pay for the car Uh and if you ever do the math that car is probably going to save about three to five hundred dollars a year in fuel sure but it costs Thirty-five to forty thousand dollars. <laughs> exactly. So you're not going to come out even close to a head. It's it's just it's not that it can't be done. It's just that it's not cost effective. Not. And that's one reason we don't have cars that get 100 miles a gallon, because as you start getting more and more fuel mileage, you save less and less money. Right. Because it's not a linear equation. It's a regressive equation. What that means, if I go from 10 miles a gallon to 20 miles a gallon, the savings is pretty significant. But when I go from 20 to 30, it's much, much smaller. And when I go from 30 to 40, it's almost nil. And when I go from 40 to 50, it's almost nothing. Right. Because I'm saving a percentage of a smaller and smaller and smaller number. So my savings get less and less while my costs go to the moon. Sure. Because you just it's not just a matter of how much am I spending on gas. It's how much am I spending to get from point A to point B. Right. And gas just, is one part of that. Right. It's not thought in that type of form well when most people go do it people often make decisions based on a single data point Uh i like this so i'll do this 
you even see that in the political system where there's a candidate and they like one thing and they will elect him based on that one thing, but there's several other things that you don't like. Well, <laughs> you got to look at the overall <laughs> package, uh, and there might be one thing you don't like, but there's several things that are in vice sure. versa. I'm not getting a political discussion. I'm just saying that you have to look at the overall total cost and not just one factor. Exactly. Because that is not going to be the total that you're paying. You're paying a whole lot of other things in there as well. And it really doesn't benefit you to save $50 a year on gasoline and, and have your budget go up $5,000 a year for car payments and maintenance and, and such as that. And, right. Yeah, all the other hoopla that goes into that. I see we're just about time for our final little break. We're going to take that real quick and be right back with more on the Automotive Hour. Hi, folks. Louis Aldazan here from Agco Automotive. This year we celebrate 40 years in business, and, man, I can't believe all the calls we receive from national dignitaries. Louis, it's the governor. I'm taking time out from my new movie to congratulate you on 40 years. I got to run, but... I'll be back. Lewis, hey, I'm playing golf with an old friend, and we wanted to call and say that 40 years is quite a run. Lewis, that is absolutely splendorific. <laughs> hey, Lewis, James here, 40 years, wow. You know, there's nothing more I like than a good homegrown Louisiana success story, except, well, maybe politicking and my tigers. You up now, you hear? Well, I'm flattered. I guess even in the world politics, honesty and integrity are still something to value. Okay, well, maybe outside the world politics. Agco. After 40 years, it's still the place to go. Hey, welcome back to the Automotive Hour. I'm your host, Louis Aldazan, with Mr. Brian Terry. Still got several minutes of show left. If you want to give us a call, of course, next week we're going to be getting into our Thanksgiving holiday, so we'll have a recorded show. And how about the and week after the that? The week after that as well. So, two so. recorded shows coming up. So, right now is a great time to get your questions if you've answered. You've got a question that personal. you need a live answer to. That's right. <laughs> now is the time. That's it. And, of course, if you just missed that little window of opportunity, something occurred to you later. That's right. You can always go to the website, get your questions answered that way. Even next week when. Or a week after when we're on vacation, That's correct. you can still get your questions answered by going to our website, which is agcoauto.com. That is A-G-C-O-A-U-T-O.com. There's a easy way to remember that. Just take the acronyms Altazan's Garage Company. That's correct. That will get you to our website. There's a contact bar on each and every page. Just click the button, fill out the form, and send it on in. That's right. And remember, I'm on vacation, so you got to cut me a little bit of slack. You won't get an answer back quite as quick as you do during the week. But it will still be in 24 hours. Within 24 hours. I generally tr always travel with my laptop. And generally, in the afternoon, we get in from perusing around, looking at all the world's largest ball of twine and whatever <laughs> else we go see. Uh, I'll sit down and answer all my email. And sometime, if I have time in the morning, I'll try to catch it again. But right. uh, at least once a day, I'm going to answer that. So, you will get an answer back within 24 hours. And I'm sure there's more information on the website you can find there and get your questions answered that way. Well, that's correct. Three major da databases on that website. So you could probably do a little search and find whatever it is you're uh -huh. curious about right there. If not, like I say, go ahead and send me an email. Sure. Glad to get you an answer back, even on vacation. <laughs> <laughs> we were talking just a little bit about breaks and stuff like that. And I got a call earlier this week, or not a call, excuse me, an email earlier this week where a gentleman was saying he had changed this, this, and this, his brake pedal was on the floor, mm -hmm. couldn't figure out how to go about diagnosing, diagnosing that. And what you got to remember about hydraulics is basic physics, and it's always the same, so it's pretty straightforward. 
you've got a fluid-filled chamber. A piston moves, which displaces that fluid. The fluid goes out, moves other pistons, which apply braking materials of various sorts, be it drum brakes or calipers or whatever. But as long as the fluid is moving in one, it's going to transfer that force to the other. As long as the system is sealed. As long as the system is sealed and it's not losing pressure or it's not having something compressible like air. Correct, like air. Because what happens when air enters a system, it's got a little bubble of air in there, and when the pressure starts to rise, air can compress, much like a spring. Sure. Well, think of it as an air compressor. That's right. You compress air, so... It does the same thing in hydraulics. Right. And as that pressure, which on a braking system, moderate braking pressure, you probably have six to 800 pounds per square inch, heavy braking, 12 to 2,500 PSI of mm-hmm. pressure. That kind of pressure can compress the air. When the air compresses, the pedal goes down. Right. Because it's displacing more. Right. But it doesn't area. push the pistons out to apply the brakes. Correct. So if any air is trapped anywhere in the system, you're not going to get a good brake pedal. The brake pedal is going to be low and it's going to be spongy. Mm -hmm. And that's where a lot of the problems lie. And many times people can't think of why they've got air in because the process of removing the air is called bleeding the system. You're bleeding the air out. And if you ever notice, there's a little bleeder screw or mechanism on virtually every brake component out there. Right. Always on the top. That brake bleeder screw always has to be on the top the highest point on the cylinder because air is going to by nature go to the top of the cylinder because it's lighter than brake fluid now i've seen many many times where people had a problem they just couldn't solve they keep bleeding the brakes keep bleeding the brakes can't get the pedal up and you ask okay what did you do to it well i put new calipers on it and sometimes they'll tow the car in with no brakes. You look, and they put the left caliper on the right side and the right caliper on the left side. And both which, the bleeder screws are on the bottom. Right. On some cars, that can be done. Now, on some cars, it's impossible to mix them up. But a lot of cars, you can put them oh, on yeah. the wrong side. If you do, what happens is that the brake, ble- <laughs> brake bleeder screw is pointing down. Correct. So when you open that screw, the fluid, which is at the bottom, comes out. The air, which Goes is at the top, stays to the top. up. Right. So you can you could run two gallons of fluid through it. You're not ever going to get your brake pedal. Well, you back. could run all the get all the fluid through it. You want it. That's right. You would never get that air to come out the top. That's right. Because the air is going to always rise to the top. It's lighter than brake fluid. So the first thing, if you've done some work on the car and now you can't bleed the brakes, the first thing to look at is where all the bleeder screws are. Make sure you didn't accidentally put one on the bottom. Put a caliper on the wrong side or a wheel cylinder right. on the wrong Same side. Same thing. Flip the wheel cylinder around, and you can also have the bleeder screw on the bottom of the wheel cylinder. Right, and they're not going to bleed that way. It will not ever bleed out. You can just keep running fluid through it forever. So that's the first thing. Now, in odd cases where, let's say, the pedal is just low and maybe you haven't done any work on the system. Okay. The way you always go about diagnosing that problem is by isolation. And the way you isolate that problem is they make devices called brake line block-off tools. Correct. Might be in the form of a pair of pliers, might be in the form of a little tightening clamp or something. But what the job of this tool is, is to tighten that brake line up and block the flow of fluid temporarily. Right. You need to use these tools because they have rounded edges and they will not cut the the hoses. If you use a pair of vice grips with square cut edges, you're going to cause some damage to that hose and then you're going to have an additional problem that is correct but on top of what you're already trying to and fix. if you got a very old car with very old hoses you may even damage it with the proper tool correct it's just something you got to know if, you, if you're dealing with a very old car you may end up having to buy new hoses but 
The thing is, if you block off the four wheels, you block all four of the hoses. Some cars are going to have three, some one in the back and two, two in, in the, the front. front. Some will have all four. You block off the four hoses. Now, see what the pedal does. If the pedal comes up rock hard at that point, you know the problem is at one of the wheels. Correct. So you simply start to remove the pliers one at a time and see when the pedal drops. Mm -hmm. When the pedal drops, that is the wheel that has the problem. Correct. So then you can go in and diagnose what's wrong at that wheel, and we'll talk about that in a second. If you block off all four wheels and the pedal is still low, then you're into anything from the master cylinder to the block. Correct. And that could be the master cylinder itself. Right. And that could be the anti-lock brake unit. Right. We changed one the other day. The One of the valves was stuck in it. It was stuck on one of the purge valves. And so what was happening is that when you applied the brake, the fluid would go through the purge valve and into the accumulator and the pedal would drop. Right. And they had done an inordinate amount of work oh, yeah. trying to fix this problem. We ended up having to change the ABS unit. And as it worked out, this particular ABS unit had been discontinued by Ford. It was no longer available. Exactly. The car was about eight or nine years old, and you couldn't get the ABS unit anymore. So I was able to find a reconditioned one, put it on, fix the problem. But the problem could be the master cylinder, and it could be the ABS unit. Now, to isolate which of those two it is becomes a little bit more complex. Right, because you have to open the hydraulic system now. Mm -hmm. And it's best to open it at the master cylinder, and they sell some... You could buy some plugs to plug the master cylinder right. off. It has to be a hydraulic plug that has that little seat in there. The correct just like, seat. Yeah, the correct seat, be it a bubble seat or, or inverted flyer. Correct. But it has to be a hydraulic block-off plug made for the purpose. Right. Block those two ports off. If the pedal comes up rock hard, then you know it's not the master cylinder, which basically leaves the, the ABS, ABS unit by default. Correct. Testing an ABS unit is extremely complicated, and if you get to that point, you're better to bring it to a professional and have sure. him test and evaluate that because some of them are very expensive. It's not something you can afford to make a mistake on. And even the master cylinder, if you block off the four wheels and the pedal still doesn't come up, a lot of do-it-yourselfers would probably be better at that point to bring it to a shop. Sure, because it doesn't necessarily have to be the master cylinder well, because a lot of, of your brake boosters have an adjustment mm -hmm. between the brake booster and the master cylinder to, to set the gap right there. And if that adjustment gets messed up, mm -hmm. it will give you a low brake pedal, but the hydraulic system is still in good shape. That's correct. And by the time you buy the tooling necessary to diagnose a problem, you've probably spent more money than they would charge you to go ahead to and go diagnose ahead. it for you. Sort of like we were talking about with the hybrid cars. Uh -huh. It's not you can't do it. It's just what's the most cost-effective way of getting the car fixed. Exactly. Because likely you're not ever going to use these tools again and if you do the next car they're not going to fit it you right have to go buy them all <laughs> and we've got a box with probably i don't know what two or three hundred of those different yeah. plugs and we still probably don't have all of them we got a good deal of the ones we work on but some of them we have to make inside in-house we to, have to, to make them at the time right to fit it by getting a line and pinching it or welding it or whatever but that is the procedure you can use to tell why the pedal is low now let's say you isolate it out to a wheel that doesn't mean necessarily the cylinder on that wheel is bad. For instance, I've seen brake calipers, particularly dual piston brake calipers, uh -huh. where the caliper slide will stick. It'll right. seize up. And what happens is that when the brake goes to apply, what it does, one piston moves, the other one doesn't. So it physically bends the brake pad, pushes it in, which operates sort of like a spring now. When you release the brake, that pad pops back, pushes that piston all the way back in as far as it'll go. So it has to travel an inordinately long distance, which drops your brake pedal. Correct. Now, 
the problem is the caliper slide. Not the caliper itself. Not the caliper itself. If you change the caliper and it doesn't come with the slides, because not all of them do, you still got the same problem. Sure. Even if you change the caliper and it comes with a slide, you spent a lot more money than you necessarily had to because you may have been able to take the slide out and free it up. Possibly. And fix that problem. Another thing might be a wheel bearing that's bad. Because if you've got a lot of slack in that wheel and the rotor is cocking and pushing the caliper pistons in, Mm -hmm. when you apply the brakes, they're going to come out, they're going to push the rotor back into position, but it's going to travel an inordinate distance. It's going to take up distance. And distance is... Distance is pedal. Right. Because it only has to move a few, I guess a few tenths of an inch at most, maybe a few thousandths of an inch to apply those brakes. When it starts to move way more than that, you're going to lose pedal. Had a Toyota a while back, and someone had done an improper brake service on it, and when they turned the rotors, they did not get them turned properly, Uh and they were running out an excessive amount. Right. And they had just been turned, so the two faces were parallel, but they were wobbling side to side. So it didn't give you a shutter when you hit the brake. You did not get a shutter, but the brake pedal was very, very low, and they couldn't figure out why the brake pedal was low. As the rotor rotated, it would push those caliper pistons back in, and this had four pistons on it. It moved four pistons back in almost 15 thousandths of an inch on all four of the pistons Right. times two is eight, so the pedal just went almost to the floor. Ended up replacing the rotors, fixed Fixed the problem. problem. Everything else was good. Another problem with low brake pedal, if your rotor surface is rough, for instance, let's say the last brakes went metal to metal or whatever, that rotor surface is very rough, and you put a new set of brake pads on it. Mm-hmm. What's going to happen is, if you imagine that surface is not a flat surface any longer, it's like a little mountain range, just high and low points. Correct. That flat brake pad is only going to contact those little high points, and you're going to have to mash the pedal a lot harder to get it to stop because it's not braking on a full surface, which when you mash harder, the pedal goes lower. Correct. So to get the same amount of braking, your pedal is going to be much lower relative to to the amount of stopping you get. So that's another thing. On rear brakes, most rear brakes, if they're drum tight, have an adjustment of some sort. They do, and some of it is automatic. Some of it you actually have to go in and override the automatic and and adjust them out correctly. Mm -hmm. We've seen vehicles come in, their back brakes were so far out of adjustment, the piston had to move the shoes out an enormous amount, which in turn lowered the brake pedal. That's right, pedal going way low. That's the first thing I look at when I get a drum brake system is where are the adjustments at on the And just brakes. sort of a rule of thumb, which is not always correct, but a general rule of thumb, if you can jack the back wheel up and it's not, say, a rear-wheel drive, say it's a front-wheel drive car so you don't have the drive axle and all turn it, but right. give that wheel a good hard spin, and if it'll make about one full turn and then kind of come to a stop. It's pretty close. It's pretty close to adjusted, right? If it just sits there and spins then freely. Then it's way out. Yeah, right. and, and if it doesn't make but a quarter of a turn, it's then probably it's, too tight. Exactly, and that's going to create heat and just well, form the drums. Too and, tight is just as bad or worse than not tight enough because what's going to happen is that it's going to get hot. When it gets hot, it's going to expand. The shoes are going to expand, and the fluid's going to expand. And when that happens, it can start applying your rear brakes. And Even more than they already are being right. adjusted too tight. Well, it may apply them just going down the road. Sure. The rear brakes start to drag, which generates more heat, which is a burning up the rear brakes. And not only that, if you're dragging, the wheels are dragging, you're burning more fuel trying to go the same speed. That's right. So it has a double effect there. Yeah, well, what you're doing is you're spending money on gas to tear up your rear brakes and ruin your car. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like the perfect storm of stuff going wrong. Exactly. <laughs> but anyway, there's some tips that may get you in the... In a park. 
park in the ballpark. And of course, there's lots and lots more. And we get back, we'll talk some more about that week after next. Or okay. Two weeks from now. Two weeks from now. Yeah. So anyway, hope you got a little bit of something out of that. We're going to start winding it on up and getting on out of here. Tell everybody how much we appreciate them listening this morning and every Saturday morning on the Automotive Hour. I'd like to thank all our podcasters for listening this week and every week. And if you got some people interested, tell them. Yeah, tell get, your friends, get more people listen. That's right. If the service you use to listen has a place for a written review, go in and give us a written review. And that always helps move us up in the ratings so more people can hear us and we can get us get on more people listening. There you That's go. right. Hey, preceding was opinion based on our experience in the automotive industry. Have a great weekend. Thank you.